song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting episode today, Dave. Oh, most definitely exciting. What's better than bad things? Bad movies in particular. Uh, not very bad things, though. I think that is a pretty bad movie. But we wa- I wanted to be specific about what kind of bad movies we're going to be talking about. We're not necessarily talking about like bo- box office bombs, because like sometimes movies do bad in the box office and are totally good movies. And we're not talking about John Carter from Mars, necessarily, where it's this big epic that lost a bunch of money, but was like a generic run-of-the-mill quality movie. We're more talking about the kind of... Movies that get talked about on podcasts, for lack of a better term, we're going to be talking about that part of the bad movie universe later on in the episode. Uh, but it's those kind of movies, the bad movies, the like kitschy movies. Absolutely. The, the kind of schlocky, uh, so bad they're good, as people like to say, or, or so bad it's impressive, at least. Yeah, and I wanted to start off by talking about a movie that is uh, just straightforwardly good, but kind of treads dangerously to the line of bad of a bad movie and that's a harold and kumar go to white castle which i think uh usually when movies like that turn out for the good they're called surprise comedy hits and i think that's like a perfect example of that dichotomy of trying to do something and having it turn out good uh, like how hard that is unless you have a lot of things in place that all work out together or you have the kind of talents that just like transcend all of that. And there's so few people that do that, that it's really incredible to see a movie like Harold and Kumar actually work out. Yeah, definitely. I think Harold and Kumar really works out so well because it's kind of a parody of multiple different genres or draws from multiple different genres. And in some ways it's definitely like a road movie, you know, in some ways it's like a stoner comedy. And both of those are are very well established, uh, very well structured genres. And I think what Harold and Kumar did is it, is it used all that kind of well-established structure that, that was out there. And it was definitely a movie that seemed like it had been made by people who were studying other movies. So even though it had so many, of the stylings of a bad movie, we'll say, you know, so much of the same flavor as a bad movie. It was really so well constructed that, that, that in the final analysis, uh, it, it actually is great. And it's, it's a movie that not only was a funny comedy movie in its moment, but has to some degree, I think, stood the test of time. It, it's still funny. And a lot of comedy movies aren't funny 10 years later. Yeah. And, and uh, the thing with one of the th- big things with Harold and Kumar is that like, for instance, uh, you mentioned that it kind of takes from both the genres. Yeah. The, to me, the biggest connection is the vignette, the dream vignette of Kumar marrying weed and the giant joint that Cheech and Chong smoke. Like, that's, to me, like, exaggerating the things they're doing in order to, like, play up. Like, obviously, they're exaggerated ideas of what, like, stoners are, but they're also, like, hit really close to home. Uh, Like, when you forget your keys or your cell phone, and you're just like, it's gone. Like, I I left it there. (laughs) (laughs) Which is also a great way to explain why they can't easily escape or navigate any of the later trials that they meet, like, because they don't have the tools that would have made the journey easy. You know what I mean? Like, in a lot of movies, or even as a writer, like as a writer of mystery stories, I have to be very conscious of what cell phones can do, because you you can't get away with, like, what Conan Doyle or Agatha Christie were, were getting away with in terms of semantics. And I love that they just like right away are just like, no, 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 no. They don't have the cell phone like immediately. 
it's taking care of all of the things you're supposed to do to make what you're trying to do work. You look at something like the Mixed Match Challenge, which for me is one of the best things that WWE has done recently, best new things, I should say, uh, because it plays through a lot of the tropes of both the way that WWE presents things to its audience when they don't think people are watching and also with the tropes of a match that gets a lot of criticism mixed gender tag team matches where it's usually or at least it used to be now the mixed match challenges really changed that an instance where you basically used it to hide somebody on defense you just didn't have somebody come in until the hot spot and now they do that a little bit but they also have for instance the miz and asuka uh, are a really good example of what you can do when you have a talented heel and a good baby face working together uh, in terms of having Asuka win all of the important victories, but also having the Miz help out enough that it actually propels them to victory. But doing so in an underhanded way, it almost reminds me in a weird way of Sting and Lex Luger. And you, you can see where they take these tropes that they usually traffic in and turn them into something that actually transcends what they're trying to do in terms of enjoyment of what you're watching. Yeah, definitely. And and like I was saying with Harold and Kumar, definitely seeming like it was the product of a lot of close study of movies. I think the same could be said of the Mixed Match Challenge. I think that when they put those pairings together for the first one and when they even came up with the idea, they said like, okay, let's forget about navigating the gender politics of this. Let's start by thinking about what works about tag team wrestling? Okay, what works about tag team wrestling is that there's more people in the ring and there's two people on each team. And on some teams, those two people are exactly the same. And on some teams, those two people couldn't be more different. And on some teams, one of them is tall and one of them is short. You know what I mean? Like there are so many different dynamics out there. And I feel like when they put the mixed match classic together, it's like you, you have your Carmella and Truth where their gimmick is you know the same and they can feed off of each other and and truth who's the more experienced wrestler can kind of bring some stuff out of carmella and carmella who's fresher can maybe make truth a little cooler a little more relevant again you know what i mean but then on the other hand you have the huge success of uh team little big or whatever they called it braun Strowman and alexa bliss in the first tournament where they used the contrast so i think one of the things that's great about mix mass challenge is that the teams are so intentionally built that there's all these internal storylines on the team. And then when you put the two teams that have all these different internal storylines going on together, then there's a lot of possibilities. You can do a lot of great stuff just because the genre itself is so strong and you've built the narrative with an eye towards the strengths of the genre. You have these chances, you take these risks and it actually works out. And I think you see a lot of the similar things with something like the Mixed Match challenge where ember moon looks good working with braun Strowman, and that allows you to see like oh well, maybe she can work in a different capacity doing different things we can trust her with this because she did well in a, something like the mix max challenge the opposite of something like a harold and camargo to white castle to me is uh like an epic movie date movie kind of that or a latter a wait period scary movie uh perhaps where they're not taking that care. They're not doing the things they're supposed to do. They're not focusing on like building stars out of this or having a plan, not even a serious plan where everything's meticulously crafted, but just like an idea of where they want to go with it. And, and both of, and these two like literally epic movie and date movie 
are just amalgamations of all of the different tropes from all of those different movies within what they consider the genre. And they'll commit, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, fraud in terms of genres just to get their point across for a joke. It's very uh, exploitative of uh, the covenant, I think, people make with movies that you're going to give a shit and try. And not just throw things up against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, they, they have that almost like sketchy quality. And I don't mean that in a good way. I think that there have been many attempts to make like sketch movies. And I, I don't know that I've seen a really good one. Like I think of uh, Monty Python's Meaning of Life. And I, when you compare that to like Life of Brian or Holy Grail, I'm making some very classic nerd references here, by the way. But like Holy Grail and meaning of life both have a very clear narrative that is drawn from source text that people know like life of brian drawn from the bible uh like monty python the holy grail like drawn from the arthuriad like they both draw on this great source source text that holds it together even though there's very little real care paid to narrative continuity or technical continuity in the movie but when you have something that's more like uh, a meaning of life where it's like different sketches, different sketches, different sketches, then it's like you start to notice the seaminess of the lack of attention to continuity because each individual thing, there's more pressure on it to be good for five or 10 minutes. Like you're not paying attention to the movie as a whole anymore. You're focusing on these little bites of it in a way, like you said, that's kind of contrary to the covenant that uh, movies have traditionally made with audiences. Yeah, that you're supposed to hold my attention for the entire thing. And that's not to say that every there's no such thing as a good movie that doesn't drag a little. Almost every great movie I can think of drags a little. Almost every movie, almost every, can, movie almost every movie over 90 minutes drags a little. Uh, epic movie and date movie are at least like nominally constructed through some sort of narrative-ish adjacent idea. To me, like a movie like Movie 43... Uh, it, it's a lot. It's um, it's a lot. It's a lot of sketches in a row. It involves a lot of vomiting, a lot of like really inappropriate, not inappropriate, but grotesque dick jokes. Grotesque. As in the dicks are do- grotesque, or the jokes about the dicks are grotesque. Uh, a little bit of a, a little bit of b. There's there's a lot of just gr- it's a grotesque movie and and to me there's a kind of shamelessness that is almost what the point of the thing is and i i i don't know if it's exactly can i can i interrupt for one second nick to your point do you remember the underground comedy movie of of late night cable infomercial fame in like the early days of of Comedy Central? Sham Wow, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was Vince. It was the Sham Wow guy who who made it. And like, I just remember that. Yeah, that for for seemingly a decade, like anytime it was after ten p.m. on Comedy Central or or one of the other kind of slightly higher male skewing cable networks you were going to see these fucking constant commercials for underground comedy movie. But yeah, like I think that's an example where it was the shamelessness of it and the star studdedness of it. Like those, those are the trappings of some of these really bad movies. Cause like I'm looking at the movie 43 Wikipedia page. Cause you just mentioned it a minute ago. And I just want to, I just want to read you a quick sentence from the movie 43 Wikipedia entry. 
It stars an ensemble cast that is led by Elizabeth Banks, Kristen Bell, Halle Berry, Gerard Butler, Leslie Bibb, Kate Bosworth, Josh Duhamel, uh, Anna Ferris, Richard Gere, Terrence Howard, Hugh Jackman, Johnny Knoxville, Justin Long, Christopher Mintz-Plazé, Chloe Grace Moretz, Chris Pratt, Liev Shriver, Sean William Scott, Emma Stone, Jason Sudeikis, Uma Thurman, Naomi Watts, and Kate Winslet. Julianne Moore, Tony Shalhoub, and Anton Yelchin, Charlie Saxon, are also featured in cutscenes released on DVD and Blu-ray. Yeah, that's like, there. I'm pretty sure there's a couple of Oscar-winning actors in that pile of shit. Like, and vomit, too. There's also vomit in, in the movie. It's just like, it, it's just like the, you need like a cigarette by the time you get to the end of that sentence. Like, it's it's so long and so much has happened. It's just like, it's incredible how people there's a certain ambition to saying like i'm gonna get 25 of the biggest names in hollywood in no particular order 25 of the top 500 let's say (laughs) you know what i mean and i'm gonna put them all in a movie and i'm gonna have all these different people write various scenes of it and direct different segments of it because i know that's how 43 was done it's like when you're doing something that's so ambitious but also rooted in like gross out sex comedy like at what step of the way do you think you're doing something good? <laughs> I don't think you care after a certain point because you've become so insulated by the idea that what you're doing is good that you completely lose the thread, which brings me to um, the, uh, the the bad version of TNA, Brother, if you know what I'm talking about. I, I feel like there's, to me, in that era of TNA, a very specific idea if we just pile on the number of stars in front of the television screen on the television screen it'll make up for whatever shitty thing we're doing this week about this thing it's very we it's not a disregard for the concerns of the fans as much as it's a disregard for listening to anyone that isn't telling you what you want to hear yeah, definitely. And I, I think you're you're pointing at a, an interesting moment or a, a crucial moment or a crucial time and place in wrestling there because, yeah, it's it's very self-insulative. Like when you had the kind of Hogan-Bischoff takeover of TNA, you you had the, that impact taping where it was like Sean Morley and the Nasty Boys and like Jimmy Hart and you had Rob Van Dam. You, you had all the people who had done Hogan's Australia tour or whatever it was the previous year. So like you had, like we were saying before, like the long list of names, like, oh, here's starring the Nasty Boys and Rob Van Dam and your buddy Hulk Hogan. You know what I mean? Like this list of names that should be impressive. But like, meanwhile, they're they're pushing out of the way the existing structure that was in place, which all along we've been saying is kind of what like redeems things even when they're really bad, you know? So it, it, it's this idea of, of trying to push something out there that you're sure is great and that you're insulating yourself uh, from, from hearing anything otherwise about. The insularity of a movie like uh, an epic movie or uh, a like a date movie is so apparent when you watch it that it's almost, it almost comes off as intentional that they're that oblivious to like the crassness or the lack of originality, like the derivativeness of what they're doing. It's as though they just say, and this is just me guessing, just 
pile the money on my face, please. It'll make me stop thinking the bad thoughts. Just pile the money on my face. Yeah, to some degree, it seems like, I mean, we, we've talked about it on the show before that, you know, there's not a lot of movies that that make it to theaters or not as many as used to in wide distribution anymore. But one thing that there's always a need for is like total trash that 16 year olds can go to on Friday night. Like there's, or I shouldn't even say 16, like 15, like people who don't have their driver's license yet, but they're old enough to be doing something independent from their parents on Friday or Saturday night. That like those movies have existed since the beginning of cinema and will exist until the end of it. They're like, scarily kind of part of the backbone of of the theater business yeah because you just need kids that want to go there for an epic date movie and just make out the entire time so they literally don't care what's on the screen and it's totally valid like i'm not i'm not i'm not hating at all like god bless you but like the point of those movies is so that when you turn to the screen to like when you you like take a breath you watch the thing it's just a joke that's a reference to a thing that you know about and you go oh that's funny and then you just go back to whatever the fuck it is you're doing it's not about creating a good movie it's about creating a consumable thing that can be like atomized into these distinct jokes that are nothing burgers but if you string enough of them together like if you string enough like light scoffs together on top of each other, it might come off as a laugh at some point. That's basically what the movies are based on. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think it was interesting that you used the, the the phrase nothing burgers because the analogy that I was instantly thinking about like is food. There's the whole spectrum of restaurants out there in a very similar manner. There's the whole spectrum of movies. There's the like cheap and nasty, but affordable and you know what you're getting end of the spectrum. And like a lot of people you know, uh, number one, they're there because that's what they were raised on. And that's just like what, you know, even though if they know it's not good for them, it's, it's the guilty pleasure. So there's, there's the people that you're, you're always going to have, like, even if they know better, there's people who are going to go to the dumb comedy movie. I saw your highness in theaters for Christ's sake. It was, it was not my favorite, uh, of any of those people's performances to be clear. Wow, uh, that's uh, to be fair. I went, and this is a completely different genre of bad movies. Uh, the first movie I ever saw without my parents uh, was *The Haunting*, which is one of the lamest movies of all time. Uh, Owen Wilson in a horror movie, just, and I don't think I could have sounded any more Long Island there than horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, both scare. uh yeah it there is a special kind of badness that we will get into in a different episode we might even have uh, our friend rich Kaysen back for that of just there's a bad kind of horror movie and it functions similarly to a bad comedy movie i think there's a way in which bad horror movies are much more redeemable yeah than, than bad comedy movies yeah definitely i think that bad horror movies are like a very important to the whole structure and lifeblood of the genre because it's like horror movies are pretty intense and they're it's a pretty crazy bargain to like 
invest one and a half to two hours into like someone scaring you shitless. And I think those bad horror movies really need to exist. They like help us kind of blow the steam off. It's, it's that much needed moment of levity the, in the days of B movies and stuff. You know what I mean? Like that was part of the yes. appeal of the B movie was that it was like a little mindless cheesy. fun. Yeah. Mindless fun entertainment. Exactly. It was mindless fun entertainment. And if it wasn't good, you didn't have to feel bad about the fact that you liked it. Like I think so many people now, they feel like, if something that they watched and if something they watched and maybe enjoyed wasn't regarded by the consensus as good, then they either wasted their time or need to invest more time in explaining to everybody else why the consensus is wrong. Stop validating yourself through the things you like anyways. <laughs> but no, no, I'm saying I think that within the horror movie space, I think the bad movies are really important. They kind of help us release some steam that we need and they help us kind of maintain perspective on the genre. You mentioned in there that the idea of these mind, mindless entertainment being okay, especially if it's not hurting anybody. And other than um, the sharks caught in the tornado and their victims thereafter, I don't think anybody got hurt by like the first Sharknado movie, which isn't like a theater release, but it's the same kind of idea of it's the opposite end of the Harold and Kumar spectrum where it's a bad movie, unequivocally a bad movie, but they get the alchemy, the reverse alchemy of it. They turn like, they turn gold into coal, not like, like use something useful, but not good for anybody. Yeah, I, when you're describing it, I'm instantly thinking of an old Vincent Price movie called The Abominable Dr. Fibes, where it's just like a really campy, cheesy horror movie where it's 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 a, a about a, a kind of creepy phantom of the opera, mad scientist type guy who lives underground, you know, killing a bunch of people one by one who he feels wronged him and attempting to reanimate his dead wife. So there it is. That's the whole storyline. And I mean, there's nothing... There's nothing good about it. Like the, the special effects are bad. The writing is bad. The acting is bad. The costumes are bad. The scenery is bad. Like, but at the same time, like you said, it, it's it's not turning lead into gold, but maybe you turn the lead into like, I don't know, like aluminum or something and then found a use for the aluminum. Yeah, exactly. It is a useful product in a way that isn't even um, like commodified. It is just a fun thing that you can kind of rally around in the way that like you can with Halloween Havoc. And that's why we did Halloween Havoc for last week's episode. Halloween Havoc to me is the perfect like getting kitschy right. It's like just over the top enough and goofy enough. It doesn't take itself seriously so that you can have fun with it. Where I think epic movie and date movie almost take the job of making a comedy that's easily consumed too seriously almost tense how how quickly the jokes come out like if they don't hit a quota of jokes they'll get electric shock and i feel like it's with sharknado at least for the first one and there's a lot of movies like this it's just a fun ride like it's a goofy movie about a shark tornado like you don't it's in the name. It's like Sharknado. It's a shark tornado. That's all you need to know. And like Tara Reed and the dude from Nino, Beverly Hills 90210 is in it. Like those are the two. Ian Zaring. I was I, I knew it wasn't Ian, Ian, but I couldn't remember. It's Ian Zaring. Those two are in it. Oh, we're going to have fun. 
Like, you know going in it's not going to be a good movie, but you also know it's not going to give you anything it's not claiming it's going to give you, which is Tara Reid, Ian Zaring, and a fucking shark turned it out. Yeah, it's it's interesting how, like, talking about a movie like that or, or, or even talking about some wrestling, certainly, it, it's intriguing that, that sometimes when we look to entertainment, we really want to be engaged and we really want to hold it to a high standard. And other times, not so much. And like the same connoisseur, or, or I will say that like in in niches where people fancy themselves connoisseurs, like horror movies, or like wrestling, or like music, people who, who consider themselves connoisseurs tend to equally draw from both ends of that spectrum, that there's part of satisfying the like high-end artistic intellectual needs. And then there's also the the need to eat the cheeseburger under your bed in shame when nobody's home, you know? Yeah, and it's it's great. Like both of these things have value in a way that something like Epic Movie or Date Movie does not have any real redeeming value other than like the the crew that worked on the movie got paid. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's value in having people having jobs. So I'm not saying you can't make any epic movies or date movies, but make something like Sharknado where they're actually enjoying themselves and it's not this grind-out jokes mess of a thing that has no has connective tissue that doesn't care about the connective tissue. And, and there, again, there's a ton of... Twister comes to mind, though that might be a little bit too good of a movie. Well, it has too good of talented people in like too many talented people in it to be like a bad movie but it's not a good movie it's not like um better you better tread carefully here nick that's one of my wife's favorite movies i've seen i've seen twister in excess of 30 to 40 to 50 times given how given how heavily it's been on the cable rotation for the last 20 years (laughs) yeah i exactly you've watched it 20 or 30 or 40 times and i've watched it i had it was one of the last vhs's i bought I really love that movie. We watched it at a couple of like my birthday sleepovers. Uh, I think at least one. We watched it at one. Like, <laughs> well, no, I don't want to know. I don't want to say. Oh, I had a bunch of birthday sleepovers and then realized like it came out when I was like eleven and I was <laughs> thirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it came out last year and it's like it was my birthday sleepover. It was great. No, I I love Twister, but it's not. It's not a. It's not an artistic triumph. Can we say that? Can we agree on that? Um, no, certainly, certainly. But it, 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 it takes the like what Jurassic Park did, the like effects driven kind of pseudo disaster movie. And it, it, it took the parts that people like were really, really hungry for effects and the suspense and like the blinky lights on screens. And it, it, it gave people that. And even though it didn't have the imagination and the power behind it that Jurassic Park did, it still helped people scratch that same itch, maybe not as deep and as as truly satisfyingly, but but you know, it was it was helping people access the same emotions that they could by seeing the by, by seeing the really great movie that they've loved without having to create something that was as good. Yeah, and, and I think and again, there's value in that. Like I I think to like you said, you've got you you and your wife have gotten a ton of enjoyment out of the, that movie. I I Jurassic Park. Some people don't think is the best movie. That is probably my favorite movie of all time. It is one of to me one of the great cinematic triumphs. But I get that that's pretty much an insane thing to say outside of like special effects. But I love it. I think it's a great movie for me personally. But I understand that like 
it outside of like I said the technical effects it's a very good movie to most people for a movie like Twister I feel like that gets moved even lower and then you have something like I'm trying to think which one is the best oh Volcano I was trying to think between Dante's Peak and Volcano like Volcano is just a bad goofy movie that is fun to watch but it doesn't have it is not a good enough movie to be sustainable in the way that like um battle bowl lethal lottery kind of stuff is also where you watch it once you're like i get it this is so dumb it's not really worth it but it is worth watching it once all the way through yeah i think you're right that there's kind of a gradual degradation as ideas get recycled just generally in entertainment like uh i'll use the example of the movie multiplicity which is unto itself a bad movie in its own way although very good. Uh, when he puts the slice of pizza in his wallet, uh, one of my all-time favorite sight gags, like Harpo Marx couldn't have done better. Uh, but 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 in Multiplicity, right, the bit is that every time he makes the clone, it, it degrades and it, it's less smart, it's less functional, it's, it's less socially acceptable. And yeah, I think you're right to identify that you go from like Jurassic Park and then you go from that to Twister. And then pretty soon you have something where it just trashes out. And then you hit that spot where like, what needs what do you need to redeem that that's when you need the parody that's when you need the intentionally bad movie when the movies just gradually degrade and get so unwatchable that's when you need the palate cleanser of of the movie that's either intentionally bad or, or so bad it's good to kind of restore your faith in the parts of the the genre that you know you know do work in spite of themselves or are fun in spite of themselves i think those are kind of what you would consider like the big time commercial bad movies like i think we hit all of the different types uh though the harold and kamar obviously is not a bad movie it's a very good movie but i wanted to uh, set the uh, establish the idea of like th these aren't bad ideas necessarily uh a lot of this is execution like people just not executing correctly uh which brings me of course to what's probably considered the modern standard for worst movie and that's the room Starring Tommy Wiseau, a lot of things that are going on outside of the actual movie itself that kind of got folded into the movie when they made the Disaster Artist that I think will change the way we look about the look at the movie going forward. But there's a specific kind of amateur shittiness, for lack of a better term, but ambition at the same time that really separates that from the so bad it's good to this like so bad it's actually informative to the human condition to be honest like Tommy Wiseau is a really interesting character if not a person he's not necessarily an interesting person but like the idea of a Tommy Wiseau and the idea of the room are kind of reframe in a, in a way the way we think about like filmmaking like there's this there's just this guy who made this movie and it caught on because it was such a poor attempt at like the basic construction of a movie that but while still being a functioning movie that it took people like it, i think it like bent people's brains in a certain way yeah, I, I think what makes it work, uh, I mean, it doesn't work, but what makes it work is something that people find enjoyable it, and that people find really fascinating is just that degree of passion that's clearly behind that movie and, and the degree of attempted artistry that's clearly going on. Like, it's like if you went, if you, if you met someone 
uh, like on a train. I don't know why we're meeting on a train. I guess this is like a Hitchcock movie. But uh, like if you met someone on a train, right, and like you just started talking to them and you asked them what they did for a living and they said you, they were an artist. And you said, oh, what do you do? And they said, oh, I'm a painter. And they, you know, what do you paint? Oh, I paint landscapes. Oh, really? Around here, local landscapes? Yeah, sure. Can you show me some of your work? And then they like whip out, you know, you're, you're really believing them and you're like, wow, this person, you know, they're, they're dressed nice. They seem respectable. They, they're, they're, they're really talking the talk. And then they whip out their phone to show you their work. And it like, looks like something that a preschooler did. You know what I mean? And that there's something inherently fascinating in that the person who is so passionate and so driven, but so lacking in talent and self-awareness, you know what I mean? That like, even if you don't have the disaster artist as a companion piece, I think that you can just, the room just reeks of that quality that you're just instantly drawn in and so fascinated by like, this is a incredible work of passion and dedication and like single-minded effort to get something done. Like, how is it possibly so bad? Like, how could you have the passion and the drive to bring something home and bring something home that's this? Yeah, it is not just like transcendently bad it's bad in a way that is incomprehensible for i I, i'm sorry you gotta give me a second i'm trying to think of the best way to describe the like it's not just that it's the passion that is in it and, and basically i think what you're saying is this that oh hi mark which is like the really famous line from it because it's so clearly like overdubbed and bad and doesn't make sense given the thing. And he, and he says it at the end of a series of denials that he committed an act of domestic violence. Yeah. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. It's very like, do you not understand how humans work? And then... You realize, no, he doesn't. That's why the movie is this way. And he's just, it is, it is almost exploitative, but in a way that like, and part of the thing about it is it's largely like self-finance as I understand, or like he was the, the main driving force for it. And it's like, no, that is not exploitative in the sense you're exploiting yourself. Like maybe later on you got exploited and when it caught on, but like the actual rawness of the the unvarnished nature of the movie actually makes it like almost a surreal, like Werner Herzog documentary style like narrative piece. Because he's so present, but he's not there. And it's very, like, it's very almost disconcerting. It reminds me almost in a way of Memento in the way that it, like, it fucks with the way that... And he's not doing any of this intentionally. He's just making a movie earnestly. Yeah, definitely. Or another another filmmaker who I think has that quality sometimes is Ralph Bakshi. Like, if you think of, like, uh, Wizards, uh, like, Cool World... Um, he did the, the, one of the Lord of the Rings animated movies, like Fritz the cat was kind of his famous flop. His movies are like deeply, deeply problematic in that like 1970s, like racial exploitation, sexual exploitation, glorification and pornographication of drug use, et cetera, et cetera. Like 
there, there's a lot of really awful stuff going on in them too. Like a lot of violence, a lot of cruelty, just like a lot of bleakness. And even like at the end, when you get what's supposed to be a happy ending, you're like, actually that ending's really fucked up. But like at the same time, I can't look away from his movies. They're like rarely on streaming services because they're so weird and problematic. But like every time that I see that like Wizards is briefly somewhere, I'm like, I'm going to watch Wizards again because there's <laughs> something about his work where you're like, this guy's crazy and awful and like, not, no one stopped him. And exactly, no one stopped him. He's this like auteur in his own way, and like the the whole style of like rotoscoped adult animation that he did and stuff. It's like he is on an island of his own within that realm, and certainly a genius in a true in the true sense that he doesn't think and communicate in the same way that everybody else thinks and communicates. They're not good movies, but they just like haunt me. I just like I can't shake them. You bring up her, and that instantly is like, I think, uh, to me, the key idea in that is that they were able to, through their sheer, it's a, a it's almost a, an act of will to create something that bad, that it's kind of a remarkable feat. It, you have to be out there, man. <laughs> you just gotta be not totally like, square and level man <laughs> i don't know how else to put it no i, I agree with you 100 percent. and and as an outsider it's like you can't help but be impressed by that you're like man i don't want to be crazy like that person but if i could somehow like you know uh reduce down engage with that idea of freedom in terms of exp- you're the way you're going to express yeah yourself. exactly exactly if you could attack something as 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 wholeheartedly and and free-willed as as someone who was that crazy you'd be like man i would be really dangerous <laughs> Not to make a like a hard left, but it it kind of reminds me of the the kind of matches that you see on Botchamania glimpsing through the and I think Botchamania works in particular because it's just these really quick hits usually of this idea of the lengths people are willing to go to wrestle I, I i know that sounds very simple and kind of stupid the way i put it the things people are willing to put themselves through to i don't even want to say entertain because i don't even think they take the audience into account it's that they are going to do this thing whether or not they are physically capable of doing these th- this thing in a way that exactly replicates the room's inability to understand that when you're making a movie you have to do certain things yeah i think botchamania one of the things that's really cool about botchamania is how much it's become a thing like inside the business like with indie wrestlers like doing the intros to the videos and stuff and it just being like a huge thing on twitter to you know be like oh i finally made it into botchamania and everything so it's interesting like you said it 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 reflects the lengths that people's ambitions extend their ability but at the same time like the popularity of botchamania and the way that matthew has turned it into a cottage industry i mean it does speak to the part of fans that wants to see that just like i said with horror movie fans it's like there's as much passion for the bad stuff as there there is for the good stuff we like we need those little bite-sized breaks why botchamania works is because matthew is a fan like he has he's opinionated for sure and he does have kind of ideas of what he wants things to be. But he also, I think, and this is part of having watched so much bad wrestling, appreciates when things are good. Like, he actually understands, like, no, I've seen the worst of the worst in such quantities that it actually makes you understand how hard it is to produce 
good shit. Oh, I, I'll tell you a quick personal Matthew story, and not that I claim to know him, but uh, I, this was back maybe when I was in college. I mean, this is like back, this is like for Botchamania less than a hundred when we're talking about episode numbers. But um, I was there. There was this like wealth of world of sports stuff on YouTube at the time. And uh, I, I found this match between Johnny Saint and Fit Finlay, like two of the definitive world of sport wrestlers. And they have this great little match. It's a quick deal. Uh, but but for the finish, Fit Finlay whips Johnny Saint into the ropes and just at, at the top of his lungs just bellows out as loud as he can. He just goes, home! And then, and then Johnny Saint comes off the ropes and they do the finish and they go home. Uh, but but I, I sent that to Matthew just because the one thing I ever reached out and sent him because it cracked me up so much once again. That it, and, and, and he just said, he, he sent back to me a one-sentence email. He said, you know if I use a Johnny Saint botch, we're all going to hell. <laughs> so so that was my that that's my Matthew story and once again yeah him just a very a very funny very sharp guy but once again kind of understands that balance of you know it's about the the seeing the ugly side of things and we don't necessarily uh we don't necessarily always want to see the bad things or we don't always want to see the worst side of our favorite wrestlers but there certainly is an appetite for uh like i said good good bad things in small portions and i think what's also uh my personal favorite part of the budget videos are the uh you talk too much parts yeah mine as well mine as well just the calling spots especially like like i mean he he came around in the era of john cena and triple h so really matthew could not have been born at a, at a better time yeah and i history. and i think what's fun about that is that it's they're not necessarily like bad moves it's just he wants you to be aware that they're putting on a show and they're trying hard but not everything is perfect i think he in a good way in the way that like a sharknado does um, and uh, Harold and Kumar do, actually. I think he combines both. The ways in which they give you that, like, re- that palate cleanser, but in a way that it, like, creates its own idea and its own its own thing can sprout from that idea, that German germination of that idea. There, There is a, like, evolution of, man, people make a lot of mistakes during wrestling matches. Oh, I should compile them. Oh, why don't I like actually start like looking at matches, not necessarily for botches, but with the idea that these performers are eventually going to mess up stuff and kind of get a hierarchy in my head of like what constitutes someone messing up, what constitutes a botch, what constitutes like something that has to go in the video immediately. Like there's this idea of cataloging and breaking down all of the different things that went wrong that it's, it, it's why I think the conversation around what the worst movie is, for example, is an ever-expanding one where the idea of like what's the best movie is very closed. Like I can't think of a movie in the last 40 years that has entered the conversa- conversation in a meaningful way. You take that back about House of a Thousand Corpses, Nick. <laughs> Rob Zombie is a fucking genius. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I I don't know why I'm I, I don't know why I'm thanking you for saying things about Rob Zombie, but I feel like I'm his representative on this podcast because I sometimes have a beer. <laughs> yeah, like I, Citizen Kane was the best movie of all time, and it's that, or it's Vertigo, or it's it's movies that came out when movies were taking a turn from. Uh, moving out of talkies into these these spectacle ideas of what films could be like, but they were also created within the context of a production code. So there were constraints 
on what they could or couldn't do. So given a, like a, a automatic governor for their creativity, not just technologically speaking, which there were a lot of, but they were given less to work with basically and created these really great movies. I'm not saying the wizard of Oz or citizen Kane or any, anything like Casablanca, anything like that are bad movies. What I'm saying is that, that like we look at them as these perfect movies and it's because they were so limited in their choices that they had to go certain ways. And the fact that they did them very well and in many cases were like the first movies to meaningfully do the things they were doing is part of the reason we look at them that way. But we don't look at something like uh, a more recent, like maybe like Apocalypse Now and understand that that's the result of this really crazy like struggle between the actors and the director and the production staff and the studio and that that's how you got that art which is much more ragged and like broken in places than a citizen kane is but it it's not treated that way because there's nothing wrong necessarily drags a little i'm sure i it's been a while since i watched it i loved it when i first watched it but it's apocalypse now half the movie is like silently walking through a jungle yeah a lot of that movie is darkness and tension and and exploring how you can make people feel in a movie theater without like relying on dialogue and special effects. I think that those, those movies from the seventies, like, like apocalypse now or like Godfather or deer hunter, like those movies are, are definitely starting to, or I would say maybe 10 years ago, there was like this movement to kind of push those movies up into that all time tier. And I think as some kind of male custodianship or some kind of um, baby boomer male custodianship, of the film industry has begun to go down. I think we've moved away from starting to, from from locking those movies into the top tier of the way they're remembered. But I think you're right that there's this, I don't want to say nostalgia, because that's a specific thing, but there's this reverence for the the movies of the, the 40s and 50s uh, in the way that there's a reverence for territorial wrestling. Because like you said, they both worked within these very specific constraints and they got super good at doing what they did. You know what I mean? That, that, that there was, they were, they were doing a very specific, very tight, very uh, repeatable process. And, and they, they got really, really good at doing it. And, and it's interesting though, because like wrestling is way different. Like wrestling, most fans or most vocal fans who are out there on the internet talking about wrestling are really reactive about the newest thing is always the best. The newest guy is always the best. Everybody wants to like do their wrestling Mount Rushmore and Seth Rollins is in it or whatever. You know what I mean? Just as an example, but like wrestling fans are really, really eager to put the stars of today in that all time tier. Whereas I think in the movie industry, I think you're right. I think it's different. I think that there's this like idyllic moment that's like locked in. And for whatever reason, there's this like, there's this belief that we'll like never get there again. Or that like, you know, when Daniel Day-Lewis does a movie once every five years that we'll get there for just a second or whatever. It's weird. Yeah, and what with bad movies, that they don't have those constraints because we're constantly finding new ways to fuck things up in a way that's kind of beautiful. Like, the, the Room is now considered the worst movie of all time, but it's up there. Like, the Emoji movie was is also considered one of the worst movies of all time. There are these movies that constantly come out that, like, redefine, for the best probably, the worst of what movies can be without being, like, exploitative and dangerous. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not disgusting stuff necessarily. Like, movie 43 is disgusting, but it's not disgusting in a way that's like uh, an Eli Roth movie. Well, it's interesting because, like, we just said that being one of the best movies and breaking into that all-time tier in terms of high regard is, like, really, really tough. But you can make a lot of money and draw a lot of eyeballs by being memorable at the other end of the spectrum. Like, it's easier for people to say, oh, that's the worst movie I've ever seen or that's the grossest thing I've ever seen. And, like, that's going to draw eyeballs in the moment. And that kind of gets back to what you were saying about, like, date movie and epic movie, you know, back at the top of the show that, like, well, if you can't make an all-time great movie, you might as well make an all-time bad movie and, like, make a little money off people laughing at how bad it is. That discussion that comes from those ideas really is something that you see a lot in wrestling and also in bad movies in a way that like people there are good movie podcasts right there's the the new paul sheer one i forgot the name of it but his original podcast the podcast that made him like a well <laughs> there, there, there there are podcasts like that one with the guy i, I don't remember the name of it sorry continue <laughs> i'm gonna look it up now you're an asshole no, 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 no. Keep it. <laughs> no, you're only illustrating your own point. Keep going. But he's famous for how did this get made? And that isn't a long tradition of talking shit about bad movies. Uh, obviously, and I, I believe you're more familiar with uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 than I am. Uh, I watched the most recent incarnation a bunch of them and i've watched earlier ones in passing but i really love the idea it's obviously like a very you don't need me to validate you guys on stuff you like but like it's a good idea because the movies they're in part because the movies they're watching are so perfectly set up for what they're doing both i think in terms of like how things are picked and obviously written for but like there is this idea that people want to talk shit about things they're watching that are bad not as like an offensive thing but as a way to like release the tension of watching a shitty thing because the underlying idea of mystery science theater 3000 is that they're trying to be driven insane by being forced to watch bad movies and like they're fine with it and the way they deal with it well not fine with it but the way they deal with it is by making jokes yeah, definitely. Once again, most of the movies that they're watching on Mystery Science Theater 3000, they, they come from moments in movie history where people were like really enthusiastic about making movies and like movies were just being like pumped out there left and right. And there was all this passion. And a lot of those movies were really terrible. But again, coming back to the room, like when you watch those Mystery Science Theater 3000 movies, you just keep seeing like, wow, this was the story that someone waited their whole life to tell and it, it, it you know if you if you started uh, dwelling on that for too too long you know after 45 minutes of dwelling on that well then the movie's just bad and it's actually a little depressing but when you've got you know the the kind of peanut gallery making the the jokes over the movie then you can just you know constantly be engaging with the fun parts of how it's bad and not you know uh not letting your mind drift to any of the emotional or psychological consequences of the movie being bad. Yeah, there's actually one of, probably my favorite Patton Oswalt bit is the uh, deathbed, the bed that eats people bit where he explains like the existential crisis you have as a punch-up writer for like kids movies when the guy that wrote wrote deathbed the bed that eats people got his fucking movie made that idea uh and it goes back to what we said about 
the room is that the passion of what they're doing transcends in a way that's obviously ripe for mockery, but it's, it's almost as close as you can get to we're laughing with you while also laughing at you as you see in polite society. <laughs> it's also kind of wild, like Mystery Science Theater 3000, there really was kind of like a wrestling aspect to it too of like, I don't know, the getting the tapes from the video store or like when they would be on late night TV, people like recording them and stuff. Like there was this whole like underground culture built around it and like even during the times when that show was dark like when they didn't have a formal distribution agreement like they were still creating tapes when tapes were the thing they were creating cds they were creating like mp3s and podcasts before podcasts were really a thing like it's pretty wild how they they've always stayed afloat for basically like 30 years doing that there's just such a hunger for that what they do yeah people want and I think a big part of it is that people want to like understand. And one of the reasons is something like how this gets made or uh, the flop house, but more so I think how this gets made illustrates it is people want to understand how things are made without having to actually make them like, and I think that something like how does this get made allows you a, a not even an ironic where I think the flop house gives you an ironic distance. The, how does this get made? is literally like talking about why did this happen? We're people who make movies and we understand that what they're doing is insane, like something to wrestle with. But if it was told by people who weren't actually there, but like knew all of the facts and like interviewed people that were there and like did an actual researched podcast about it, does that, that, that make sense? Like it, it has that Conrad Thompson doing the exposition for the thing and then having Bruce Pritchard actually explain what happened from his point of view. But they're just talking from like, we've made movies before and all of these decisions are insane. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I could see it. If it's, it's a kind of like a, a hybrid combination of like something to wrestle with and like OSW review. If you got something in there, that, that would kind of be the equivalent. And I think OSW Review, um, and, and and they come from the same basic like tradition uh, as as Botchamania. Um, OSW Review is weird, isn't the right word. It is interesting to me at least because they took what was considered a at that point uh, at best like right for nostalgia mining purposes, but mostly like shitty era of actual wrestling, but a really popular era of wrestling and broke it down in a meaningful way that allowed you to understand like both in the context of the time and now, like what the fuck they were thinking. The natural extension of something like a mystery science theater 3000 or uh, how did this get made? Uh, and also the flop house where it's kind of them like sitting in the stew of what they're watching and talking about. I think there's a, I think there's a crucial difference uh, that you're kind of pointing at too, though, between wrestling podcasts generally, or at least the wrestling podcasts that are like really, really super duper popular, like the Conrad Thompson ones, for example, that you talked about is there's this like, there's this line that's kind of being tiptoed along with a lot of those podcasts between like, serious historical analysis and joking around like you have 83 weeks where it's like Eric Bischoff for better or worse is trying to codify his version of history and like it's reasonably serious minded 
and academic to some degree. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have like what happened when with like Tony Schiavone, where it's just purely making fun of bad stuff, more of like a pure mystery science theater 3000 experience. And then you have something to wrestle with, which is the most popular wrestling podcast in the world. And it's wild how it's just this kind of amorphous blend of joking around and having fun. But then on the other hand, like trying to curate history a little bit, it, it's kind of dangerous. I think the one where we're in this era of podcasting, we're kind of blending academic genre study and fun and games in a way that's like really, really entertaining. How old am I saying fun and games uh, in a way that's really, really entertaining but at the same time, it's it's a little weird to me. I, I find it kind of strange. Like maybe I am old fashioned, but I think that like there's there's serious analysis and there's goofing around and like you can do both and enjoy both. But I, I kind of like doing them at separate times. Things get kind of confusing and it can lead to things getting distorted or inflated or, or people, you know, believing the good story rather than seeing the truth that's underneath it. So it, it's, it's an interesting place we're at with with these sort of infotaining wrestling podcasts. Yeah, and then I think on the opposite end of the spectrum, in terms of, like, an information, I think, and then we're not, like, blowing smoke up their ass, uh, but OSW Review really, and I think, uh, is like, How to Wrestling, and there's a couple of other British podcasts, basically, that really have broken have are taking that academic idea, and with the, they joke, like, OSW Review, they have their jokes, but they do actually give you numerical context, historical context. And I think that is a function of like actually understanding that these things have archival purposes. They kind of bring up, like you were saying, um, as we were talking about off mic, um, you know, when a book is coming, you're going to be popular because it was on NPR or Oprah and it's kind of like, you know that people are going to watch this movie separately because they saw it on mystery science theater 3000, or they saw it on how did this get made? Like there's this idea of you bringing people along to watch this thing. And I think that's what wrestling podcasts have done an exceptional job of in the last couple of years in terms of the, the fan side where I think there is that danger of not appreciating for lack of a better term, the gravity, the gravitas, let's just say gravitas of someone like Bruce Pritchard in the stories he tells. I don't think Bruce Pritchard lying about or telling Fibbin or not telling the whole truth about something is going to like affect world trade. But I think it is in terms of appreciating the truth, a difficult proposition to have someone who's, I'm not calling him a liar, but I'm saying like, you don't know when he's joking or not joking and blending those two things when you're trying to create historical documents is problematic because you have to understand what's going, uh, what happened going forward in the proper context. And a lot of the time that context is shorn from the thing you're hearing or seeing. So now that we've solved um, bad movies and wrestling podcasts and the future of both, I, I have the question I've been thinking about the entire time, which is which Booker, creative person, Vince McMahon, uh, would, is the best at what I guess would be the Sharknado equivalent of booking, which is to say that they're really good at making shit that's so good, so bad it's good. Uh, but in a way that is like sustainable and actually works and isn't just like a 
shit pile that backs up and just more shit piles on it. I, I, oh man, well, until you qualified that with all those other modifiers at the end about it can't be too shitty, I had a great answer. Uh, no, 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 I'm just kidding. Actually, the person I'll go with is Kevin Sullivan. Uh, you, you know my, my great ironic and unironic love of the Legends of the Hidden Temple uh, Dungeon of Doom set. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Kevin Sullivan, I mean, he, he's someone who, he, he was willing to do stuff that was just like outlandish and silly and stupid. Uh, but there always was kind of like a respect for genre logic in it. Like the steps were always explained. The explanations were just completely stupid. You know what I mean? Like the, the like Mang having the golden spike, like that he was given the golden spike by the, the master to, to, you know, dole out punishment for the sins of mankind or whatever. Like it's stupid, but it's an explanation. And I mean, if you go back even further to like the Florida stuff, like I think it's still up on YouTube, you know, him summoning the purple haze out of the ocean, which was like, you know, 45 year old Mark Lewin coming back to do another money run. You know, he'd been on TV in the fifties and everything anyway, but yeah, Kevin Sullivan, he's got that great blend of just completely cartoon ridiculousness. Uh, but also that kind of, uh, that, that honesty and that respect of the, the genre tropes that make bad stuff. Okay. Yeah. I, I actually have a weird one and I hope I don't offend you when I say it, but I feel like the sheer, uh, What's a nice way of putting this? Um, bullheadedness of Bill Watts would lend itself to creating a kind of room-esque masterpiece if given enough chances to do so. Like, I, I feel like he had these ideas that were so extreme and his willingness to just fucking go through with them was really, I, I think Bill Watts is a really good director, writer, booker, whatever you want to call it. I think he also had the ability, if he was really like let go to go completely, to do some like really wild, terrible shit. And I, I don't know if, I think in the modern wrestling context, he would have had even more of a chance to do that. But I feel like that's what I look for in like, I think Kelvin, Kevin Sullivan's a great answer, and if you hadn't said it, I probably would have. But I think outside of Kevin Sullivan, who's that special kind of hokey, that like satanic panic kind of hokey, the best guy for me is Bill Watts. No, definitely. I think Bill Watts would have that uh, passionate vision of terribleness that we've been talking about throughout, where like you would know that you know someone was fully behind this movie and not only had thought it out, but had like agonized over every single second of it. I bet it would be manly though. It's, it's going to be rugged. It's like a movie that Teddy Roosevelt would have liked. Yeah, no, that's the thing is I think he would make this hyper masculine, like, uh, what Billy Joe, uh, Billy Jack, Billy Jack. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, uh, he would be like a Billy Jack where you're like, what the fuck is going on in this movie? And they would just, he's got a hat. He knows karate. What, what further questions do you have? Nick? It would be, yeah, it would be like a Chuck Norris movie where you're just like, he's kicking ass and taking names and he's doing it all in the name of his savior <laughs> and Texas like, or Oklahoma or wherever that guy, that character was from uh, it, like roadhouse 
also comes to mind. Like he would have done an even crazier version of Roadhouse. Like I feel like Bill Watts craziness is kind of underrated. <laughs> yeah, definitely. He, he has that kind of craziness that like passed off for just extreme manliness between like the 40s and 60s or 40s and 70s even <laughs> a lot of the kind of like great uh godfathers of the wrestling business did uh, like if you look at uh roy welch was like the same way where you know he he really pulled together and organized all of southern wrestling but like when you hear his like grandchildren when you hear uh ron or robert fuller talking about he's about like he was nuts like that he was you know he would intentionally make them ride the worst horse and and laugh when it bit them and stuff that he was just like a completely nuts guy but worshipped as like a manly man with a big vision do you have anything to plug this week yeah well as usual people can follow me on twitter at dave writes junk to uh you know hear about all the various things i am doing uh, i i keep teasing that i have big project exciting wrestling related news for everybody and uh, i promise i still do I, i'm just someone who doesn't like to count chickens before they hatch i probably shouldn't have said anything in the first place but uh hopefully i'll have good news for everybody soon just follow me on twitter uh, you can also check out my writing at The Wrestling Estate. Uh, last week, our roundtable topic was the hardcore title, which everybody is talking about now for some freaking reason. I don't know what the big deal is. So if you want to hear me be sour or read me being sour about the hardcore championship, head over to The Wrestling Estate and uh, dig in. Drag his ass, Dave. <laughs> yeah, the hardcore title is bad, real bad real bad you know what it's it's nick you and i like you and i were the age where we were watching every single moment of raw and smackdown every week when that stuff was happening and people who were maybe I, i'm not i'm not once again i'm the fucking worst old fart ever but people who were like five or ten years younger than us i i don't know you, you didn't live during it there i'm officially old you didn't live during it <laughs> if you think it was great it's you're wrong. one of the worst executed and thought of things in the history of wrestling like it is again it's outside of like offensively bad but it's offensively bad for like the foundational aspects of wrestling i i, I could do an entire episode on the ways in which it ruined wrestling uh i'm not going to yeah seriously like the way the the way that title was booked bleeding into the way all the other titles were booked which definitely happened sorry anyways <laughs> we're not bitter about it we're not angry uh, no, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. I don't, you know, print out full color pictures of the hardcore belt every day and burn them in my waste paper basket. <laughs> I totally don't do that. I don't have a Crash Holly dartboard, Nick. <laughs> I don't have two of them. Wow. Because there was a good deal. <laughs> and I was scared I might I was scared I might wear the one out by throwing too many darts at it. So I got a backup right away. How did you get them in your car? I would assume they were so heavy. Oh, well, they are each in excess of uh, 500 pounds or 400 pounds or 300 pounds or whatever. Did you also, did they carry around, isn't the picture, is he carrying around an entire, like, doctor's weight scale? <laughs> oh, my God. I loved in the WWF No Mercy game for N64, the Crash Holly entrance where he was carrying the scale. He was carrying the scale, like, like, you know, uh, on TV when someone's supposed to be holding, like, a full cup of coffee, but you can tell the cup's empty just by the way they're holding it. <laughs> in, in No Mercy for N64, Crash Holly struts down to the ring as if that scale weighs three ounces. 
Uh, R.I.P. Crash Holly. God bless. Yeah, seriously. Don't do pills, everybody. <laughs> um, so uh, for me, you can check me out at The Nixter. That's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. You can check us out at HowWrestlingExplains.Podbean.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Store music area thing uh and uh pocket casts um speaking of pocket casts uh we do have an announcement um i'm excited dave are you excited oh well you know i'm always excited when we have previously agreed to be excited about things that's fair i did already yeah it's double indemnity i think that's how it works right that's what the movie's about right yeah definitely that's definitely what the movie's about (laughs) um we are going to be doing a new podcast we're going to continue doing this podcast but we are going to be uh, at the beginning of next year premiering a podcast and it is going to be called the podcast beyond and our plan for it is to split it into seasons and for the first season we are going to be doing all of the horsemen the four horsemen of course uh war games matches uh, we are going to be breaking them down individually in their own episodes. Uh, we're going to be trying to trying to provide historical context for what happened, how we got there, and whenever we can, try to give you something you may not know, either from a book or from a shoot interview. We're going to try to give you like a full picture of what was going on at the time, how matches came to be, either behind the scenes or in front of the camera. Um, and yeah, it's just something I, th- I think we've been both kind of wanting to do a more in-depth uh, like run of a specific kind of match. Uh, and we've started doing it with our How Blank Explains Wrestling episodes, where we're going to be splitting it into two going forward uh, and focusing usually the second episode on essential viewings. And this is going to be like a really in-depth on individual matches version of that um, that I, I think you're going to like. Yeah, I'm excited too. Uh, yeah, and and um, like I said, we're going to be premiering that uh, at the beginning of next year along with the new videos. Uh, so those are both things you're going to have a chance to look forward to. We'll have more details about how we're doing it, how the podcast will be distributed, where you can sign up, all that stuff, um, everything Patreon-related, everything like that. So uh, to, to keep listening, and uh, we'll let you know when we have more information uh, that we're going to be the ones making so when we're ready to tell you we'll tell you what's going on i'm trying to write movies it's fucking hard man and it got even harder this year because they released a movie on dvd it was made in 1977 they never released it it just now got put out on dvd this year and it's called deathbed the bed that eats people i'm not making go imdb this this is a real movie deathbed the bed that eats people. And it's about a bed that's evil and it eats people. That's the whole movie. And the backstory is it's like the 1500s. There's a demon. The guy kills the demon with the sword. The demon's blood gets on the bed. Now the bed's possessed. Go to present day, 77. When people fuck on the bed, the bed kills them because it's evil. That's the, that's the fucking plot. So I've sold four different movies to four different uh, studios. And a lot of you are thinking, hey, you got it made, kid. Hang on, because when you sell a screenplay, you then go through a one-year notes process that will make you want to stab yourself in the eyes with your own dick that you've torn off, shellacked, and turned into a letter opener. That is how, instead of like, yeah, um, we have some notes 
on page two, she's eating peanuts, but then later she's wearing a hat. Does that make sense? You're like, what the fuck are you talking about? This guy wrote Deathbed, the bed that eats people, took it to a second guy and said, okay, it's called Deathbed, the bed that eats people. Now the backstory is, there's a demon, and then the second guy said, stop drilling, you hit oil. You had me at Deathbed. We are going to rent cameras, buy film stock, hire a crew, we are shooting this masterpiece. They hired a crew. Caterers woke up at dawn and boiled coffee and sliced bagels for people to have the fuel to act in deathbed, the bed that eats people. A carpenter drove nails into wood, building the deathbed. Probably tore his shoulder out. You know, fucked up his rotator cuff. Couldn't play catch with his son growing up. Now the son grows up to resent him. He's blowing guys in bus stations all day. 50 dicks in his ass like the tail of a peacock. And his dad's going, you know what? He'll finally understand when he sees deathbed, the bed that eats people. <laughs> of the four movies I've sold, I've started 10 other screenplays. I get halfway through and go, fuck it. I'm, I, just, I just give up. I, just, I have no discipline. I just, ah, I can't fucking finish it. This guy thought up deathbed, the bed that eats people, and fucking finished it. That means one of two things happened. He either never had a moment's doubt, just hit that typewriter every day, just going, yeah, then the pillow starts to smother. Oh, this is awesome! Reach down, God, give me a high five. Boom! Well, here's what's worse. What if he had moments of doubt and then fucking worked through them? That's so much worse for me if he was just going, and then the pillow starts to, what the fuck am I writing? I'm putting my name on this piece of shit. No, I will finish this. I will finish what I start. Hear that little poster of the kitten hanging in the tree going, just hang in there, baby. He goes, yes, I will hang in there, kitten.